Welcome to Crowdfunding Uncut. This is the place where incredible project creators show you how they launch their products online using the world's largest crowdfunding engines, such as Indiegogo and Kickstarter. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. This is episode 35 of Crowdfunding Uncut. Now, if you are a current project creator that is planning your very own Kickstarter or Indiegogo campaign, you should head over to crowdfundinguncut.com. We have a free case study. It's a really huge 35-page guide outlining exactly what we did with our last campaign, Thin Ice, to raise $592,000 on Indiegogo. And it's a great play-by-play. It's called the Crowdfunding Playbook. So you can just head over there and check that out. Now, today's episode, we are doing a bit of a special one. Um, If you are familiar with Giro, they are what I quote, the James Bond of luggage. Uh, Pretty cool campaign. They've raised over $3.3 million on Kickstarter. And Netta Shalgi, who is the, the founder, gets into one aspect of crowdfunding that is usually missed. And it's that crowdfunding is a product launch, but it's also the creation of an online business. And many times project creators don't look at what comes after crowdfunding or or looking at your e-commerce strategy once you've raised a bunch of money and have a bunch of customers. So today we're going to be going through how one transitions from a massive campaign first to set that up, but also what do you do after that fact? And what should you be aware of? So, Netta, I'm really, really excited to have you on the call today. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's such an intro. I'd like to be here, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, have you ever heard it's like the James Bond of luggages, or am I actually yeah, unique? Well, you, you're unique, but we're, we're kind of thinking what is the best title somebody ever gave to our luggage. Um and you're 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 the, you're the winner right now. So thank you. <gasps> really? Yes. I just <laughs> couldn't help it because you have this suave business guy in your video. You're showing it good for all terrain, good for any use basically. And that to me, I just see as James Bond is prepared for anything. And um, yeah, I guess when I was uh, looking at the stats, one thing that really stood out about your campaign, and we'll get to this in a little bit, but you had a really fast start. Um, I think between day three and four, you hit half a million dollars raised. So we'll get to that, how you had such a fast start, because that is one of the most important things that a lot of uh, startup founders mess up on Kickstarter and Indiegogo is how to have that fast start. But before we get into that, why don't you uh, tell me a bit about who Netta Shagali is and how this idea came about? Sure. So thank you. Um, uh, basically, I'm coming from the field of industrial designing. I am right now I'm mostly an entrepreneur um, developing the business and uh, dealing with, with project creation and, and business establishing in the past few years. But uh, uh, I'm coming from, from that field of industrial design. So um, entire project creation and manufacturing is not um, something that is something that we have a lot of experience with. Um, and as a frequent traveler, I used to break my luggage constantly in the past, I would know, 
10 to 12 years. I'm not, I'm not that old, but I'm old enough to break a lot of luggage. Uh, and I joined forces with my current partner, which is Ken Hertz, who's uh, one of the founders also in the project. And we, we share the same problem, but in different areas in the world. I'm coming from Tel Aviv and he's from Los Angeles. And, uh, we were both, um, starting in each in his own yard, um, to deal with the problems, trying to solve it. And, uh, we met through a mutual friend and we realized that we can join forces and create, uh, something big or we can try to solve it ourselves. And we decided to join forces and, um, and establish the, establish the brand. And, um, the reason we went to Kickstarter is, because after the, the first R&D we had, we had the projects, the, the products, the prototypes in hand. Um, it was the shortest way to get the market reaction and the shortest ways to get funds uh, to establish a production line for this very complicated project. Okay. And going back when you met your co-founder, how like what was the timeline on that? Was that last year? Was that five years ago? It was uh, almost two years ago. Um, I've been I've been halfway with with the concept of Giro of today's Giro, um, and then you know the, the um, amount of consciousness you have in a partnership is the is the sum of the consciousnesses people pour in and and the consciousness of the people of the partners. Um, so we have different perceptions, we have different needs, and we have different. Um, wheels from, from the product. So we just pour everything we wanted to achieve from that product. And it's not, it's not just my own needs or, or, um, or things that I wanted to achieve. It's not just his, it's not just anybody else who joined in. It's a, um, summary of a lot of experience, a lot of frustrations and a lot of dreams that um, many people poured inside this project through through time of development. Yeah, and back when you first met uh, Ken, that's the co-founder, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so back when you met Ken, what did Giro look like at that point? Like, I know it wasn't a finished product, but can you walk me through uh, what your first idea was before you started creating this? Sure. So before, before I met Ken, before the marriage, um, so Jira was a, a, a trunk. It was closer to a trunk, but with large wheels. I mean, the identification of different components that are not off-the-shelf components to get a better bag was already, already alive. And, um, and uh, we already have large prototypes of large wheels, not as good as we have today, but we have the, the first trials. Um, but then Ken, which is a frequent traveler, uh, I would say one of the, I mean, the most frequent travelers I ever met, um, he got his perspective about time, about time of traveling, about time of waiting on the carousel, for the bags, about time um, to check in the bags. And since we started to deal with time and saving time, 
um, we thought about shrinking the size and starting with not just with luggage, not dealing with luggage, but dealing with a very specific size, which is a carry-on size, and very specific, specific feature, uh, feature list that uh, actually saves time and creates a certain amount of delight that really doesn't exist in any interface with any existing luggage today. And this is where we started to think about mainly about the user experience, the ergonomics, the user-centered um, thinking that we put the user in the, in the front or in the center and we wrap the specific user that we have in every possible feature that doesn't bring more complexity to our already complex, com complicated product. Cool. And so you eventually got prototype and before you went on Kickstarter, how far along was the project? Like, did you have a working prototype? Yeah, well, when you want to go to Kickstarter versus other platform like Indiegogo, which you can go with um, um, illustrations and uh, simulations, when it comes to Kickstarter, they they uh, require to have a working, fully working prototype when it's uh, a product design category. Um, so before we went to Kickstarter, we had to have a few working prototypes first because we wanted to test them and present them to uh to uh, you know other people that we collaborated with, but we wanted to test them ourselves before we we go and, and offer them to, to potential backers, and um, we wanted to go through the entire uh, possibility and the ability to manufacture this kind of bag, um, just just because right after Kickstarter, when you get the funds, you really have to dive into the manufacturing process and eventually to deliver in the time in the time frame that you set yourself. So um, as, a, as a result from, um, from past experience on different Kickstarter projects uh, of myself and other people, my friends, we realized that it's better to be very ready, especially when it comes to product design um, and, a, and a physical product uh, on Kickstarter versus to establish the entire system um, after the project and after everything is funded. Yeah, no, that's that's great. And you're giving yourselves about six to seven months for delivery, I saw based on the timeline? Yeah, we have eight months to deliver. We set it on August. Uh, we will need to, we already have the manufacturer, the manufacturers uh, sourced, but uh, right now with the increase, uh, incredible increase in quantities, I think uh, we're, approaching almost double the quantity that we thought we will have to manufacture on the first batch. Um, we are looking for, um, for factories with more uh, capability of manufacturing. Um, but anyway, for, for what we have now, that's, that's, uh, that's more than good. And um, uh, we have, a phase of tooling because just in order to do the injection moldings and the textiles, you have to have um, mass production toolings that will take some time to create. And uh, this is something that you don't want to rush. Uh, you can't rush because this is basically carving hard uh, steel in order to 
create the amount of accuracy you want from the parts, from the moving parts and from the products. So it will be the top of the line. And, uh, and then, of course, you have to establish a production line. You have to order the materials. You have to um, um, have these sub-assemblies ready in uh, different factories. You have to establish the, the supply chain and to have the final assembly and, of course, to deal with all log- logistics. Absolutely. So now that in this point you have a working prototype, you now decide that we need to bring this to market. Did you have, um, before Kickstarter, did you have any angel investment or funding for this project? Yes. Um, for this kind of uh, scale of product, um, especially, and, uh, and for um, the scale of this kind of a Kickstarter campaign, um, we raised a seed investment for the company. Um, and Kickstarter going to crowdfunding was part of the plan, the business plan of the company. Um, and we raised, yeah, and we raised um, just enough to go to Kickstarter and, dis- and, and to test the product in in the market. I mean, to to um, see how much the project is is required, you know, to to test the need. But we made sure that based on our past experience that we have enough money to market properly the project and to um, create enough traction of backers into the projects, you know, to track enough eyeballs and uh, not, if, if something doesn't, doesn't work well, not to declare that the project is, that the product is not required just because we didn't have enough traction of people to the project. This is this is one of the most important things that um, people ask me a lot about it. About okay, if I have an idea, maybe I just do it and put it on Kickstarter. And I said that's a good idea, but you have to make sure that you have enough um, resources and enough, I don't know, momentum to get enough people to look at the project and then decide before you just decide if it's a good or bad project for for go to market with. Yeah. Now, when we talk about launch day, uh, you set an original goal of 125,000. And based on the stats that I saw, you like when did you hit that $125,000 raised? Um, I think after six hours from launch. <laughs> okay. Jeez. So, can you walk me through how you like what did you do to get that $125,000 and quick start? Because you ended up doing a half million dollars in three to four days. So like, can you walk me through how you set yourself up for success in those first three days? Sure. I I will reveal some secrets. Oh, I can't Um, wait. Yeah. But I I think, I think it's, it's a, it's a strategy that proven itself and, um, well, and and this is what we do. Um, so just, just before, uh, the campaign started, we communicated, uh, because we knew we had to spread the word, the word, and we knew that, um, news are getting very, uh, getting old very fast today. And something that somebody, uh, wrote on is not interesting anymore for somebody else to write the same thing. Um, so in order to prepare everything and to have, to create enough interest between, you know, writers, reporters, bloggers, we set like a very long time frame before the launch 
that we hire the services of two PR companies, not just one. Um, one is called Blonde. Um, they're, they're located in Tel Aviv and they're mainly dealing with uh, high tech finance and crowdfunding. They're specializing that. And the other one is, is called Jundo. They're from New York and London and they're, um, mainly dealing with lifestyle, fashion, traveling and, um, and those fields, those areas. And so the, we made sure that those two companies are not overlapping with the pitches. So we don't have situation of double pitching, but they're also collaborating with each other and delivering information. So they're work, they're both working for us and not against each other. Okay. And, and sorry, when you said uh, very far before the campaign, so how many months out did you decide to hire these two companies and have them start? Well, I'll be honest, we decided to hire them like a year before the campaign because we started to work on the campaign. Uh, they actually started to work like three months before the campaign, but uh, it turned to be three months because we postponed the launch in one month. But um, we, set it, we set it for two months uh, before the campaign to start and talk with media. That would be uh, enough time to get everyone ready. And were they, what were they doing for you exactly? Are these a um, PR service company, social media? Yeah, so that's the interesting stuff. So uh, like two months before the campaign, we had all the materials ready and we started to write the press releases. And then they started to uh, pitch out to journalists and bloggers and whoever might be interested in writing on that. And like two weeks before the campaign to keep it hot enough and to keep it classified enough after all the people that we met uh, agreed to the embargo um, that not to write anything before the launch, um, we took ourselves and the models and we started a media tour that was perfectly set by these two PR uh, firms. Um, starting in San Francisco, through New York, and then London. Uh, we met as many reporters as possible from a variety of, of um, magazines and blogs. Uh, we showed them the prototypes. They had the possibility to hold it in hand, uh, to talk to us, to try it themselves, to ask any question they want. Um, and it's been very, very hectic. And... Um, and each one just got his own personal angle about us and about the product and about the project. And we kind of stretched the string in the bow so much. So when we launched on October 14th, I thought, uh, at 8 o'clock, um, 8 p.m., um, the embargo just expired and everyone within the minute just released their, um, their articles. Did you, so was the embargo set for as soon as you guys launched or did you tell them to wait until you hit a certain funding point to start talking? Well, the first embargo was for the launch date okay. and the launch time. Um, so they will be the first one to, to write about it, but there was, there were quite a lot of them. So everyone wrote to his own audiences and, and then. Uh, we got pretty pretty fast and wide coverage within the same time, and um, and then we also set a goal that is a little bit low for what we needed, but we wanted to um, get to the goal as much as fast as possible. And once we reached the goal, so it gave another 
uh, PR event um, to write about. And then even people, uh, because some, some bloggers won't write on projects before they're successful. Yeah, um, I've been seeing and, that. Yeah, so uh, we, we kind of made a plan before the campaign of possible PR events uh, knowing the different different reporters, bloggers that we're going to approach to and their special requests or the special attitude about writing and mentioning uh, certain projects. And through that, creating a, the PR, the possible PR events like launch and then reaching the goal and then reaching two times the goal and then reaching 10 times the goal and then reaching $1 million dollars. Uh, we kind of mapped the possible PR event and then the, um, the, the companies kind of, uh, reached out to the people, uh, to the specific people who would be interested in, uh, this kind of, uh, event or other kind of event and let them, uh, and, and prepare them to, um, to write about us when we reach to, um, to the goals. Awesome. And, so PR was a huge point uh, in getting press day and also having a prototype to show the press. But what else did you do for marketing before? I mean, I guess, uh, what else did you do for marketing to get that first three days to blow up? We pray. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just kidding. Because like, did no, you... actually, we pray every day, of course. Of, of course. Um, but some other similar things that uh, campaigns do is they may do Facebook ads, Google AdWords, they may do retargeting, PR. Like these are all just tools. But outside of PR, did you guys use anything else to get a fast start? Yeah, um, we did. We did something that I guess everyone would do. Um, but since we're working so long uh, on this project, and we have pretty wide network of people, friends and family. Um, we acknowledge everyone and we told everyone beforehand about what we're going to do um, and about the launch. And we emailed like crazy all over uh, for, for a few days. Um, and then, and then of course, because, it, because we're also connected to our uh, friends, family and, and, um, colleagues through our social networks, which is in this case, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, Instagram, Pinterest, some of it. So um, we're all connected. So we started to publish whatever we wanted there. And since everyone are connected, so we kind of um, moved it fast through the social networks and created a buzz, um, sometimes smaller, sometimes larger, but eventually uh, it we've we've reached enough people to uh to create this kind of community where we can uh reach enough people to um to tell the story about the project okay and early stages i guess within that first week how much of what you raised would you say was organic traffic that through friends and family or your direct networks pledged versus random people that had maybe come onto your page from Kickstarter that don't have any association with you? Like, what would you say is that, is that split? Well, I think in the first week, of course, the, the, the first people are friends and family um, that were very happy to support us because they knew how much 
uh, effort we put in the project and they're actually believing the product and, and uh, lucky us, we have something that they will need, even, even the relatively, um, high cost of the product, but not the cost of the product in the market in retail. Uh, so I would say it was about the first day was about 50%, um, of friends and family versus organic, um, backers that just reached from the campaign. Um, but that was the first, uh, so it means that maybe three or 400 people, um, are friends and family, but the rest are backers. But if we look, um, if, if we have a cross section today and we look at the amount of people that are back, we're almost in 7,000 backers. And, and by the way, I have to say that a lot of people, uh, look at, at the number, but looking at the wrong number on Kickstarter and a lot of people looking at how much money people raised. And that's, that's a good number to look at, but it's, a, it's almost the wrong number because they have to lift their eyes into the number above to see how many backers, because that means people. And the, these are people that put their money in the trust. Uh, even if they're friends and family, it's still their money that they can do something else with that money. Um, and, and this is, this is the community that, that was formed or we're forming and we have to start and deal as the first buyers, first customers and, um, and people who actually put their trust in us. Uh, and, 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 um, the number, whatever the number will be, uh, of the amount pledged and the amount raised is, is, consequent from the amount of backers and not 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 the other way around um and a lot of people say hey you've raised over two and a half million dollars on kicks i said yes but we've we've got a feedback from almost seven thousand people about our products this is much more exciting and much more important than the money because it means that we created something that people want and are willing to uh, to pay for it, not just something that you know the money comes from out of nowhere. So, um, okay, anyway, it's just my pitch. Yeah, no, I, I understand. Um, is what you're saying is you have you've reached seven thousand people and convinced seven thousand, well, just under seven thousand to buy your product, and that's a lot stronger than if you only had a hundred people backing you. Sorry, you're breaking, you're breaking up. Sorry, can you, is this better? Yeah, no, I yeah. can hear you. Sorry, what I was saying is um, because you've convinced or you had 7,000 people trust you enough to give you money for this project pre-manufacturing, that that's a much better case for validation than if you just had 100 backers and raising $2.7 million. Definitely. And when I connected to your, your question about what was the split, the split between friends and family into organic, uh, backers. So I'm saying that even if the first kick was by friends and family, when we look at the project today, um, and if we need to validate the product. So I think we got a very good validation from organic backers versus our, um, early friend and family that were there to support the product and, and the project. Yeah, no, I can't agree more. 
So when we look at uh, moving through the campaign after you had this like explosion in the first three days, um, something that campaigns may struggle with is keeping the momentum going, especially after because when you blow up, I'll see a trend where campaigns start to have their sales slow down after day eight or nine of the campaign. And then it's hard to keep the sales coming between like that midpoint. So I'm wondering, uh, what is one thing that you did really well to keep the momentum going? Um, okay. So to my to my um, understanding, actually, we didn't do well in keeping the momentum going because um, maintaining a 60 days campaign is something that you have to reinvent yourself over and over and to create new stories. Um, so uh, to be honest, I, I don't think we did it too good, but I think what we um, what we did achieve is that we kind of um, managed to reveal new sides of, of the project and especially new sides of the, of the project um, creators and to reach to uh, new audiences which are not necessarily the first people to back this kind of projects through those stories or through those. Um, and this is, by the way, uh, through interviews and through helping other people to help the helping uh, in their um, campaigns, um, and um, and and of course there are the there are the those PR companies that help us um, all along the way, and they are continued and pitch new um, new sources that has not been pitched before or has had no interest before. And um, we we had to find new angles about the project and about um, about the field and about traveling that we will reveal and discover through the project. For example, I, I have to say that for example, one thing was that we discovered that because of the ergonomics of of the product, uh, it's really comfortable for women in heels to walk in. So. Um, or to uh, pregnant women, we just met a pregnant woman that came to our office one day to, for, for, I mean, she's one of our advisors and uh, she happened to be in pregnant and she said, gosh, it's so comfortable. I can't carry anything, but she's in, the, or she was in eight or nine months. Um, and, and then we just realized it's just from this, tiny event that there might be something else here. And then we, we went back to the pure companies and we told them the story and we kind of built a new pitch around this one that was like a side pitch, but it's relevant to new audiences. And, um, so we had to be very creative, not just with the product itself and not just with the beginning of the, um, with the beginning of the, um, uh, project. So all along the project to find new angles that, has not been told yet and to try and to leverage them into, uh, into people who are interested. in. Yeah. I love that. Um, cause it shows the, the development of a product as you get customer feedback as well. Um, that's, one that's thing, true. one thing that I'm curious about is, did you always plan on doing a 60 day campaign? 
Well, it's a good question because there's always this um, um, thinking whether to do a short campaign, which you know people see that you have very short amount of time, and then they will they don't think twice whether to back you or not, or to have enough time to do adjustments. Um, we realize that it's better to have a longer campaign with including the difficulties of maintaining a very long campaign because uh, you know there's you need a lot of energy to maintain this kind of campaign and it's it's really hard work um, but within 60 days a lot can happen and if if something goes wrong you have enough time to fix it you have enough time to um, go creative and you have enough time to make adjustments in your campaign um, and and you have enough time to test uh, through trials and error to um, to navigate this campaign into uh, a greater success and if you have if you're very limited in time um, it might be something that you make uh, very strict decisions and very I wouldn't say impulsive decisions but um, you're you're motivated by other factors and not not just by um, what is well, I'm saying that you have you have more room to make decisions and to experiment with a campaign to see what works and what doesn't work without having a very critical uh, effect on the campaign. You have time to uh, to fix things. Great. And uh, so, just a couple of last questions here. But if you had to, or if you had an opportunity to redo this entire campaign again, what would be the number one thing that you would change? Well, that's a very good question. It's always the toughest. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm silent because I'm thinking, but... That's okay. It'll be a good oh. answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, look, obviously we made a lot of mistakes, but I don't know if you if we would, if we had done it in a different way with with the same knowledge we would do basically which do the different mistakes um okay so i think that the i think that the things we struggle the most are are the things that are not obvious and you kind of postponing the decisions uh, into a later time, which happened to come pretty fast, and then you're you're uh, you have to make those decisions with you know with the time limitations, like I'm just saying about choosing the, the the time frame for the campaign. Things like the stretch goals and things uh, of what the day after the campaign. Um, and I think these these factors, um, the launch, the first week, the launch. Um, mid-campaign stretch goals and the uh, the final days and the day after the campaigns are critical for what you want to achieve in the future. Because first you want to to succeed to succeed in your campaign. You want success in your campaign. But once you get the success, so what is the next stage? And I think that if we had time. Which obviously you don't, you never have the time for that because you're, there's always things to do before the campaign, uh, to make the, the campaign better. 
But if we just had go through uh, just making one hour meeting um, of the entire team, taking the time, leaving the preparation for the campaign uh, and go through different scenarios. What if something goes wrong? What if everything goes wrong? What if we have a great success? What if we have a huge success on the first week? To have like crazy scenarios, to go, to go beyond the crazy scenarios, because eventually some of those crazy, crazy scenarios just occur to be reality. And, and just to have them in, in your perception, just to have them in your mind, um, and experience with, with just thinking about it, not even solve everything. If you can solve something through, you know, imagination, that's good, but just to have them in your mind, in your consciousness, I think it will, it will create a lot of, uh, a lot of differences through the navigation of the campaign, of the entire campaign. I love that because then if, crazy scenarios happen that you didn't plan for, then you're going to make a really um, rational or potentially irrational quick decision. And you can't afford to make those in business when you're really stressed and don't have time to really think it through. Exactly. Well, you can afford because eventually you have to do it and you do it. Yeah. But if, if you just have the awareness of, um, again, not deciding or not, building anything in, you know, all kinds of scenarios. Of course, you don't want to lose, you know, uh, spend too much time on something that is not probable to happen. And you don't want to spend too much resources on, on something that is, you know, it's just a waste of time from a certain point when it looks like a waste of time. Eventually it might be or not be a waste of time. But um, just to have it in your consciousness about probable scenarios, um, I think that relates to stretch goals, uh, success, failures, um, shifting in the campaign, shifting in reality. What happened if you're doing a campaign in a certain field, uh, for example, that includes a regulation, and that regulation changes during the campaign? What do you do then? Um, so these are things that a little bit imaginary, but through that imaginary scenarios, you come up with a different way of thinking that might help you to be a better campaign manager. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, my last question is where are, after three days has ended, what is next for Jiro? Like <laughs> production. Yeah. I mean, massive, um, massive production. I mean, I see certain larger campaigns like the travel jacket, for example, they will, once their campaign shuts down on Kickstarter, they'll move over to Indiegogo and accept pre-orders. Um, are you guys like shutting down uh, pre-orders right after this campaign or like, what is, what does the next couple months look like for you? Okay. So it's a very good question. And this is part of our, um, struggling, not struggling, but our decisions in the last couple of days. Um, of course, we're not shutting down first because, um, you know, there is the aftershock. Um, I would say the aftershock uh, visitors or the late bloomers who are still interested in the product, they just missed the 60 days. Uh, and of course, you don't want to fail them. You want to engage those people and you want to create a relationship and sell the product. So of course, I, I would never suggest to shut down and to disappear 
uh, of course, we have to increase our appearance. We have to increase our visibility. Um, and there are several mechanisms um, and methods of how to do it. Um, there are a lot of pre-sales services and pre-sales platforms, such as Indiegogo. Um, this is one scenario. Um, there are um, different companies, you know, that you can collaborate with and continue in the pre-sales and offer until fulfillment, until you go to retail, um, the product in a, in, in, a ma- in the same cost or a different cost, but it's in, in, in a cost that is still very appealing um, to early adapters and backers because, of course, we met a lot of them, but not all of them. And there are um, there are different audiences uh, in different platforms uh, like Indiegogo and others um, that has not been exposed to the project. And if you can repeat the scenarios and, and uh, create more pre-orders, uh, so I think eventually it's a, it's business and, and as a business you have to sell as much as possible and to uh, widen your your customer base. Well said. All right. Well, I know um, like I learned something huge from these campaigns and having this great opportunity to speak to you. Um, so I'm going to put a link to your campaign in the show notes. But apart from that, thank you so much for taking your time. Um, I appreciate how busy you must be in the last three days right now. Yeah, very busy, but it's, it's a good break. I mean, it's good. It's a good to take time and to talk to some, somebody about something else, not just about dealing, you know, with the detail of the bits of bytes. It will wait. All the messages and the comments will wait and they're on the wall for us for, and, <laughs> to yeah, deal with. I get it. Um, cool. All right. Well, thank you so much. We will wrap it up here. Thank you so much, Christy. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as uh, I did. Don't forget to head over to crowdfundinguncut.com where you can pick up the crowdfunding playbook for free as well. If you love what you're hearing, please do head over to iTunes, hit subscribe, and leave us a beautiful five-star review, and we will see you next time. Are you launching a product on either Kickstarter or Shopify and you're feeling completely overwhelmed with the process? Hi there, my name is Kirsten, the CEO of Launch and Scale. To date, we've helped several online sellers sell millions of dollars online and scale their business from zero to seven figures by focusing on building an audience of fans that will actually convert into paying customers. If you're serious about building a seven-figure e-commerce brand with less time and less risk, you should check out our product launchpad. PLP is a proven accelerator that takes you step-by-step through the process of launching and scaling your product brand. Brands like the Monk Manual, Aberlite, Series Chill, Jamstack, and several others were all launched using our product launchpad. So if you'd like to be our next success story, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more. And for a limited time, we're offering a seven-day trial of the product launchpad for only $1. Again, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more.